Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Now, like I said in the last episode, I'm deciding to change things up a bit. I'm going to be doing longer, more detailed episodes on Canada's history every Saturday. Every Monday, I'm going to be interviewing people who are involved in Canadian history and maybe some well-known Canadians on occasion. And every Wednesday, I'll be alternating between Canada year by year and the battles in Canada's history. So today, we're doing an interview. We're interviewing Mark Terry. Mark Terry is actually from York University, and he wrote a book called The Geodoc, Geomedia Documentary Film and Social Change. And it was a really interesting book, but one part of it that really appealed to me was chapter two, and that dealt with documentary films in Canadian history. And there's some really interesting stories there, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get too much into it because it'll ruin the interview because we talked quite a bit about it, but we have uh, documentary films being used to bring settlers to Canada, and we have the first real government-sanctioned movie houses being created in the world in Canada. And we really were jumping on board with all of this and getting right behind it. And it's really interesting. And we also talk about Nanook of the North, which is said to be the first feature-length documentary, but in actuality, another film by a Canadian company called Hudson's Bay Company was actually probably the first documentary film with the romance of the far fur country. And I actually talked about that on my episode on Saturday about the Hudson's Bay Company. Anyways, let's get to it. Our interview with Mark Terry. Tell me a bit about James uh, Simon uh, Freer. Yeah, he's a very interesting character, eh? He is. Um, yeah, I kind of discovered him going through the archives, and he's not very well known in um, academic circles um, with uh, with film studies. But um, every now and then, his name pops up, and and what I discovered about the guy is um, he was just a Manitoba farmer. He was originally a journalist from England, and uh, he heard about these. Um, land grants that Canada was offering at the time to anybody that wanted to settle in Canada. And so uh, he never thought of immigrating uh, to Canada, but when he heard about 200 acres of land for free (laughs) and all you have to do is farm it, then he said, sign me up. (laughs) Yeah. So he brought his, uh, his wife and his family and uh, settled in Manitoba and uh, had this farm, but ever, the journalist, right? He wanted to uh, expand and, and not necessarily uh, abandon his original uh, professional practice. So when he heard about film uh, being introduced by the Lumiere brothers in, um, in 1895, well, then he said, I want to do that. That sounds fascinating. So he went down to the States and, and picked up uh, one of the Edison cameras. Those were the original cameras that that both uh, recorded film and, and were used as projectors as well. Eh? Mm-hmm. So he, he grabbed one of those and he came back and he did what anybody does that has a camera for the very first time. He made home movies. <laughs> <laughs> so he shot his farm and he shot the train going by and he shot his dog and all that sort of stuff. And, um, and then um, one of his neighbors um, in the farm country was Clifford Sifton. Mm-hmm. I know, that, was that part was crazy. Guy. That was crazy to me. Yeah, 
Yeah, he was the, the minister of the interior at the time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he said, oh, you got this film thing. What a great idea. Why don't you go to England and show the film or the various films that you've made and then tell them about this land grant thing and start this huge wave of immigration in Canada? <laughs> and Freer said, sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, so when, that part of it's crazy to me that you get the, kind of the first guy to really get a film camera in Canada. And then you have the guy who's responsible for bringing people into Canada and they live next to each other. Like, and especially yeah. <laughs> back then, everybody's really spaced apart. It, oh, it's yeah. just, it's such a weird uh, circumstance where these two people happen to know each other. Yeah. And, and he's often described as his friend and neighbor. Mm -hmm. um, there's no further description as to how he was a friend, but I would imagine they, um, they just got together maybe maybe to have a beer or something every now and then, you know, because yeah. they live so close to each other. Yeah. But, uh, but they really uh, had a symbiotic relationship because, um, um, you know, Freer wanted his films to be seen and, uh, and Sifton provided federal funding to allow him to take these, these field trips, um, and show his films. And in return, there was a huge wave of immigration, um, that brought in 3 million people to Canada. <laughs> And uh, in, in some of the, the other archives I found, it said that um, the uh, Border Patrol on the coast were so ill-equipped for this wave of immigration that they couldn't handle all the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's kind of, and it leads to kind of into another question, just those early documentaries in Canadian immigration, because when people think of Canadian immigration, they think of posters being put up, and you don't really hear too much about films being shown but it's kind of this very early like i mean how how i guess he wouldn't have had special effects or anything like that but when you look at um uh when uh towns would put out pamphlets back in the 1900s for people to move to their town it was always glowing it was like well it doesn't get that cold here and the ground is amazing and all of this so kind of on that same note how true were these early immigration documentaries were they a bit kind of leaning towards it's the land of milk and honey or was it you know this is what we're just filming what's happening well freer's films um were neither um, <laughs> They weren't saying everything is great, and they weren't saying that everything was cold and, and miserable as well. They were quite literally just scenes of his farm and people stooking uh, grain and baling hay and that sort of stuff, and showing a train going by. There, there really wasn't much to attract anybody to this country uh, through the films themselves. It was really the promise of free land that, uh, that caused the, the big wave of immigration. Now, later on, um, uh, another character named Charles Urban was introduced to the scene um, by Clifford Sifton, and um, he made a series of films called Living Canada. Mm -hmm. And these films were more about what you're talking about. Yeah, the 1902 were... series, right? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and he just basically filmed from a train as it crossed the country from Quebec City to Victoria. <laughs> And uh, he showed all the beautiful things, Niagara Falls, Rocky Mountains, and he was given um, explicit instruction not to show any scenes of snow. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's easy to do and if you do it in the summer, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but, but Sifton felt that no one would want to come to Canada if it looked like this barren, frozen wasteland, right? <laughs> so, um, so Sifton was true to his word. He only showed the beauty shots. 
Uh, however, he did shoot some of the snow and ice, and he rented out that footage um, from his uh, his base in in England. <laughs> um, what what effect did the Living Canada series have? Well, it, it was good. It really kind of started a couple of new industries. Uh, one, the film industry in Canada, mm-hmm. and two, the the train industry. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, all these various new train lines started to open up. <laughs> it wasn't just the Canadian Pacific Railroad anymore. Now you had, you know, CN and the Grand Trunk and and um, many, many others. And, um, and for film, uh, various governments began to adopt um, the, the medium as a communications tool for its people. So Ontario, for example, was the very first state-run film studio in the world. And that was in, I believe, 1917. I have to check my own book on that, but I think that's... I think that that was right, yeah. Yeah. And then um, all the others started to follow suit, too. The Canadian Motion Picture Bureau was the first um, federal government film studio in the world. And so we began to see all the provinces adopt film as a way of reaching its people. Um, was Canada kind of a leader in government-run uh, studios, with it being the yep. first, and it kind of showed everybody else how to everybody else how to kind of do this? I guess, I guess, kind of mild form of propaganda. Yeah, well, it wasn't so much propaganda yet. Uh, what it was was really education, mm. um, and the reason Canada liked it so much was because many of its citizens were living in very remote parts of the country, and um, they weren't able to attend school like people in more urban centers could. Mm -hmm. So in order to reach them, they made films like How to Brush Your Teeth, How to Wash Your Hands, (laughs) right? And and these were the films that were sent out. But Ontario was was kind of a leader in more industrial education. Mm -hmm. And and what I mean by that is um, uh, they made a film of the making of the Queen Elizabeth Highway, and they sent that around to other governments who wanted to learn how to make a highway. Oh, that's... <laughs> yeah. Huh. Um, what about World War One? What role did that play in our documentaries? Because obviously you're going to push kind of that patriotism and everything. Did that kind of... Especially with the government-run document... Or document... Government-run studios popping up around the same time as the First World War. Kind of what effect did the war have on <clears throat> that kind of thing? Well, it really wasn't a big effect um, on... Um, on film during World War One, it really came more in World War Two. Mm. That's when we began to see more blatant propaganda um, in the film. One of the first few films made by the National Film Board of Canada were, um, you know, what we would call today propaganda documentaries, mm. like Churchill's Island, 1941. Um, oddly enough, it won the very first Academy Award for Best <laughs> Documentary, and it was a pure... <laughs> Uh, wartime doc, uh, propaganda <laughs> documentary <laughs> um, kind of in relation to that you know you hear about Nanook of the North and how it kind of blurred the lines between documentary and fiction but it was actually really interesting to find out because I've always thought that Nanook was you know the first real documentary but then reading uh, that your your book uh, I came across the romance for the fur trade romance for fur trade country and that's kind of the first feature documentary, and it was the Hudson's Bay. So can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, it was actually called The Romance of the Far Fur Country. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and, um, oh, I know it's a hard title it to is. remember. 
but uh, but yeah, Nanook of the North always got uh, all the press about being the first documentary ever made, and uh, and that's been reinforced by scholarship throughout the years. But um, the reality was there was a, a previous feature-length documentary, almost about the same subject, um, made I think three years before, and that was called The Romance of the Far Fur Country, and um, it was made to commemorate believe it or not, the 250th anniversary of the Hudson's Bay Company at that time. <laughs> does it still exist? Right? Well, the Hudson's Bay Company does exist. Oh, I know that. I mean, the, the, uh, the, uh, the documentary. Oh, yeah, yeah, the documentary. It's been lovingly restored. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, by um, a group out of Winnipeg. And um, they put it together. And you can see uh, parts of it on YouTube. But if, I think if you want to see the entire film, you can um, just write um, the guys that restored it and get a copy. Hmm. But yeah, it's fascinating because it's two hours long and um, it travels across Canada showing the various outposts of the Hudson's Bay Company. And, um, and even, even more so, they had subtitles in, um, in the Inuit language. <laughs> yeah, which is very impressive. That really is, yeah. Yeah, and um, and Robert Flaherty saw this film and talked to the filmmaker and got tips and was actually inspired to do his own Nanook of the North after seeing this original film. <laughs> was it a weird concept to kind of... Like, you obviously had movies that were approaching two hours by that point, but to have something yeah. where it's like, you know, this isn't fiction, this is us kind of just pointing a camera around, because you have, you know, your little vignettes and things like that beforehand, but was it mm-hmm. kind of this revolutionary idea to be like hey let's have a feature length film that's you know not scripted not it's it's not fiction this is you know we're showing something that's actually happening yes the idea was um to create um a film that was not uh, what did somebody call it once uh, that it wasn't a um, an artist plaything <laughs> that it wasn't um, made for amusement or storytelling uh, in the sense of entertainment, but it, it would be used um, in a nonfiction way to tell stories that were true, that were that were real, and um, and I think what you found with um, Romance of the Far Fur Country, you have a film that doesn't necessarily tell a story as much as it represents a report of business activities of this company. You know, here's our station, here's what we sell, and here you know this sort of thing. And um, you didn't really get a good look or, or a, a good understanding of what the Inuit people of Canada were actually like. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't dive into their homes and see what they ate and how they raised their kids or anything like that. Um, so it really isn't the documentary in the way we would define it, mm-hmm. but it's still a documentary in the fact that it's a, a two-hour feature film of something that was true. Yeah. In regards to the Nanook, uh, what was the good and the bad of, of that? Like, obviously, it kind of kickstarts the whole documentary genre, even though it, it wasn't the first. But, um, you know, it has good points to it. It has bad points to it. Kind of what what effect did you think it had, and what were the good and bad points? Well, I think that the good points are obvious. It was um, um, an early experiment in ethnographic filmmaking showing what um, a certain kind of people uh, somewhere in a remote location on the planet, um, how they lived and what they look like and, 
and everything else like that. So in a way, it was, it was very good to bring a part of the world that we would never see um, into the theaters where a lot of people live. So it was great in opening up the world. It was mm-hmm. one of the first um, films to inspire globalization, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the good things about it. One of the bad things is it really kind of tainted um, the, the whole aspect of documentary as as a reliable resource of representing the truth. Mm-hmm. And that's because uh, Flaherty, the director, um, took a lot of liberties by staging certain scenes. And, um, and when he did that, it, it cast a shadow of doubt over everything we watched in documentary after that. Mm-hmm. Is this real or did they just set that up? Yeah. You know? Um, it's actually it's actually kind of funny because you mentioned that Sifton says, "I don't want any snow in this film that we're sending across to London," and then obviously yeah. he's he's dead by this point. But then the first real mass-produced documentary that goes all over the world from Canada yeah. is set in the Arctic and it shows nothing yeah. but snow. <laughs> yeah, that's great irony, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's very true and and. I don't know if it's because of um, either of those two films, but uh, maybe that's why we have this reputation of being a frozen wasteland today. <laughs> it must be the igloos and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so film starts to really build up through you know the early 19th century, but at the same time in Canada, we're going through a big social change. Uh, we know women are getting the right to vote. Uh, we go through various little periods of prohibition ourselves, things like that. What role did early uh, documentary films in Canada kind of play in our social change um, and showing how everybody was living? Well, I think the interesting thing is because we began with the government as filmmaker, I think that really kind of set the stage for the involvement of, um, of the artist in the, um, the, the changing of our social norms and, and the creation of policy. Uh, progressive policy that is and I, I think we see that with um oh the, the very early years back in the, in the 1917s and 19s when women didn't have the right to vote um it was the canadian film offices in british columbia that actually hired the first woman oh uh, may watkins mm. um yeah and and they gave her uh, a lot of responsibility she was the very first female projectionist um she was the very first um uh, canadian film producer that actually produced films and um and she had a government job she was the very first woman to hold uh, a a full-time job within the canadian government so that was one of the openings but because we set that stage we had this top-down approach where the government would say here's what you need to know and here's a film about it but then we began to say, well, you know what? You're a little out of touch. <laughs> There's a problem in our community that needs your support. And um, we've written you and you've ignored it. So now we're going to make a film just like you guys do and show it to you. And with that, we want you to see the visible evidence of our situation. Now that happened uh, most successfully in Fogo Island in Newfoundland and that's where um, the the fishing village there was suffering because most of the fish they usually 
capture were uh, they moved on. Mm-hmm. And so they, tr- they tried to write the, the government saying we need some help here because uh, we're all dying. We don't have any source of income. And, and the government's response was, well, we'll just move you to St. John's. <laughs> and they and they went well wait a sec no, no we don't want to do that we live here and and that's when uh the nfb the national film board of canada uh went there to do a documentary series about this this crisis and what they did the filmmaker colin lowe he brought those films to the federal government and said this is what's going on and once they saw that they developed the co-op which uh <clears throat> which enabled the people to actually um, continue and live and survive. Yeah. And you kind of transition into my next question perfectly because I was going to ask you about the Newfoundland project. And oh, yeah, uh, yeah. what, so I guess that's a real good method of social change. Plus, it kind of gets things going with the National Film Board. So, what the long term effect of Newfoundland project, what do you feel it was? Well, I think that set the stage for um, other filmmakers to say, we can change the government. We can change our lives. We can change societies with film. We just have to take this direct approach. And I call it the direct approach because I believe um, documentary filmmakers are more successful in achieving change when they involve the change maker um, at the beginning, during production, and afterwards as audience. And what a lot of filmmakers, uh, I used to be one myself, and I still am to some degree, but what a lot of documentary filmmakers like to do is to put their vision on film, to tell the story they've researched, and try to get audiences at film festivals to get excited and, uh, and to act as surrogates to invoke change. Um, I just think it's more expedient to go directly to the source <laughs> and say, what do you need to see in the film to affect this kind of change? And in a way, the policymaker provides um, an order, just like you would in a restaurant, mm-hmm. of what he needs, what he wants. And then you go and fulfill that order, and you show it to him as you're going to make sure you're on the right track, and also to give them the opportunity to say they want something else, like you want fries with that. Right? <laughs> and, so, and so then the filmmaker completes the film, and rather than to whip the public into a frenzy, and then have the public you know, send petitions and demands and protests to the policymaker. You just sit down in a quiet boardroom and show them the film. And every time there's a connection between an actual social change and a documentary film, it's because of the direct approach. Mm-hmm. Um, just my last question. When you look at the history of uh, not just documentaries, but cinema, Canada really kind of leads the way. I mean, we set up the first studio in Hollywood. Uh, Mary Pickford is Canada or America's sweetheart, but she's actually Canadian. All the way up to today with people like James Cameron, we, we really do influence a lot. And then just with talking about people like uh, James Fear and, and such, why, why do you think Canada kind of like, we're, we jumped so quickly onto this uh, movie bandwagon where we were kind of innovating a lot of things in the early years? Well, I think it's part of our, our national identity, really. And I think it's because of the government involvement in these nascent years that it's become something we're used to. Um, everybody remembers sitting in school when they're, they're little watching NFB films in the classroom, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and knowing that our government produces these films, 
So when you see the government from the top down saying making film is important, then we tend to adopt that uh, culture as artists and, and, and even as um, a, an industry. You know, we know we're going to have government support because they led the way. And we know that um, it's effective, useful, highly entertaining. So why not get involved uh, personally? So I, I think because of the, the, these early origins, we've established ourselves as a country of filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Without a doubt. Um, and yeah. uh, just for people listening, uh, you can actually download the National Film Board app or go on their website and they have thousands of films on there and they're all free from going all the way back to, uh, I think actually Churchill Island is on there as well. So you're going all the way back yes, to like 1941. Is. And I've spent right. many weekends watching films from like the 60s, 70s. And it's great. Like it, it, it gives you such a nice glimpse of Canada in the past that I just, I don't think you get anywhere else. Like I don't think if there's anything in the States where you have this, wonderful organization that has captured life for you know 80 years uh going back and then it's it's just all free you can watch it anytime you want it's like it's amazing i love it yeah it's it's a wonderful resource and thank god they, they went digital and put mm -hmm. everything online for everyone yeah yeah um so i guess how can people reach you or, or uh, find out uh, what you're doing or you know uh, buy anything that you've got out there uh yeah mm -hmm. Well, um, the new book that I have uh, that just came out in, in March um, and covers a lot of the stuff we talked about today, it's called The Geodoc, Geomedia Documentary Film and Social Change. And that's published by Paul Grave Macmillan. And you can find it on Amazon or any of those sites, Chapters, Indigo. And uh, you can order it and they will deliver it even <laughs> during these days. <laughs> um, and if you don't want to handle a book, you can order the, the ebook version as well. And uh, I'm at York University. I'm a contract uh, faculty member of the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University in Toronto. And my email address is T-E-R-R-M-A, Terma, at yorku.ca. And the, the book, uh, I really like the, I really enjoyed it. Like I know we, we kind of focused uh, mostly on chapter two just because of the history aspect of it, but yeah. there was, a, there's so much more that's in it that is very interesting. And I, I like, I had no idea about the first filmmaker and that was for me discovering anything new with Canadian history. I love so that, and just the, the wonderful coincidence of the two living next to each other and then how this <laughs> yeah. influences immigration coming into Canada. It was it was just really, really interesting. And I like that it was just a farmer in Manitoba. It wasn't like some rich guy who built a studio. It was just some guy who was like, hey, this seems cool. And I'm going to give it a try. And then from there, our film industry, uh, you know, grows. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, the, the whole world's film industry, because Russia was next to follow mm -hmm. uh, by having the government build their own film studios. But we did it first. Yep. As we did with many things. <laughs> Yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, perfect. Yeah. So thanks so much for, for doing that interview. Like I said, I really enjoyed the reading. I'm still kind of getting through it, but uh, it was actually really interesting to kind of learn a lot of that stuff uh, that you had in there. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of Canadian History X. And if you did, please give a rating and review. You can support the podcast at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. And you can also find hundreds of articles on Canada's history by visiting my website at CanadaX.com. 
And you can email me at craig at CanadaX if you have any questions or ideas.